Welcome to Aircrew Interview. I'm Mike Young, your host, and today's podcast is with Rick Greenbridge. Rick flew many different types in his career, but this podcast will be mainly focusing on the Lancaster bomber with the BBMF. He also talks about flying Lightnings, Phantoms, Tornado F3, and also his exchange with the French flying the Mirage 3. So please enjoy and don't forget to subscribe at youtube.com forward slash aircrew interview. Well, I was uh, sitting on the beach at Bognor when I was 13 um, because I'd been evacuated there during the war. Um, and it was a, a hot summer's afternoon and suddenly this red machine went past at... I don't know what speed it was, but it was totally silent and low level. And it was Neville Duke doing his world airspeed record in the Hawker Hunter. And of course, I didn't hear anything, even though it was doing walk factor 10, because it was it was going supersonic. The next day, I was on the same beach, and a silver aircraft, which was the Supermarine Swift with Mike Lithgow in, upped the world record. So I was going to be a test pilot. That's what started me off. So, when did you join the RAF? Well, it, virtually, it was uh, that's ironic as well. Um, I was working in a city bank. That's a long story and uh, saying to somebody, do you know what, if I keep my nose clean, by the age I'm 30, I'll be a thousand a year man. And he said, yeah, you'll be as bloody boring as I am. Um, and I was due to do national service in 58. In November 58, I would have been called up. So I went in and joined the Air Force um, in, in the May um, and did the... If, you got 24 shillings a day, but if you signed on for three years, you got three pounds a day, and if you signed on for five, you got five. So I signed on for five. Um, and that, that's basically how I went in. Unfortunately, in June, they cancelled national service, so I needn't have gone in at all, but I've got no regrets about it. What was your first flying experience? My very first flying experience was my very first in sortie in the Jet Provost in 1961. I'd never flown before at all. Did you have a, a certain type you would like to fly? Yeah, I, I. the only one I would like to have flown sort of in, uh, operationally would have been the Hawk Hunter. Out of all the, the jets I've flown, I, I, I missed that one. And there's a story behind that as well. Rick chats a bit about his time flying the Lightning and the Mirage 3. Well, um, I, I became what you call a creamed-off QFI first, so I was flying the, the Jet Provost. But my first frontline frontline fighter was the Lightning. I had flown the Meteor and the Vampire, but that was on advanced flying training. What was your first squadron? 29 squadron. And was that with the Lightning? Yep. And what was your first solo trip like in the Lightning? Frightening. <laughs> in fact, strangely enough, the one I it was such a complicated aeroplane and we were an experiment. We the RAF decided to try six poor souls who were creamed off flying instructors. You had to sort of have a certain ability to get to, to that position then. Um, so um, they did an experiment. They took six of us straight from the jet provost, which I think weighed about two thousand pounds, straight onto the lining which weighed twenty tons. Um, and it's such a complicated aeroplane you used to do your first solo in the dual aircraft you'd just done your last practice in and they would 
just strap up the instructor's seat and you went off. Then, if you came back alive, you went off in the single seat. And it was frightening. And how did the lighting compare to other jets at the time? Well, at the time, it was English jets, British jets, it was the fastest, the highest, and the only one with a real radar that worked, although maybe uh, the Javelin, that radar was about the same, so probably that's radar work, but the Lightning was the highest and fastest, but the shortest in endurance. And then you also went off to France. Can you tell me a bit about that? <laughs> well, um, I was instructing on the Lightning, and um, I was just about to go night flying, and the... Um, P2, that, that's the personnel people, rang up and said um, I had to go down and do a, a security clearance because I was going off to the States on exchange. I said, well, I'm just going flying. They said, well, when you come back, um, can you uh, check in with us and we'll go through the security checks because it's quite urgent. When I came back, it had been cancelled. They said, but don't worry, you'll get the next exchange. And the next exchange was to the Mirage. I went and flew the Mirage and uh, a Frenchman came and flew the Lightning. So can you tell me a bit about your trip with the, the Mirage? Like, how was it like compared to the Lightning? It was... I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Lightning buffs. It was better. The Lightning could go up to 36,000 feet where it had to live because of its... That was its most... Its best-performing area, the Tropopause. But it could get up there in three-quarters of a minute. Um, but it couldn't stay there very long. Uh, and there was no way of really giving it more duration. You, you could put overwing tanks on it, but it, it limited its performance severely. So um, the Mirage, the only thing I had against that, that was single engine and single seat, of course. Um, the good thing about the Mirage, it was very flexible. You could hang massive, great underwing tanks all the way up to really smooth, conformal, supersonic tanks. You could actually replace the rear fuel uh, bay and put a little rocket in it. So it could go be a Lightning, only better than the Lightning, because it had this extra rocket. It got uh, 80 seconds of 1,800 kilograms switchable, which up there is quite effective. Um, and it could, if you put the tanks on, come ground attack and, and do something like two, two hours. So from that point of view, disadvantage... I don't like going to war with one engine. So if you had a preference, which one would you choose? Out of the two? Oh, Mirage. Um, one of the amusing things uh, I recalled about the Lightning, wherein we did the very first inter-Air Force exchange with the Italians following the Second World War. And it was in 1968. And we went to a, a lovely place called Grosetto, and they looked after us brilliantly, uh, except they said, oh, we have, a, we have a kept plenty of beer for you. And when we got there, there were about eight, eight bottles. And on a lightning squadron of 12 people, it didn't go very far. But they were excellent. We had a great time with them. But coming home, we were going to meet the tankers because a lightning uh, could only go about half an hour without flight refueling. Um, and it went everywhere at 36,000 feet, where the pressure isn't very high. Now, a military aircraft is, has what they call an operational pressurisation, not like an airliner, where at 30,000 feet, you're virtually the same pressure as you would be at 8,000 feet. 
so that you you don't have a massive explosion if you you get a leak or a crack in the cockpit basically your pressure up at 36,000 is let me work it out is about 20,000 feet so your actual pressure in the cockpit is quite low because it was a longish journey back the Italians had given us sandwiches nice cut into little squares so you can take your mask off and eat it and they'd given us cans of orange juice well that sounds good but the first guy to open his orange juice transmitted said do not open your orange juice because it was fizzy orange juice so of course when he opened the can all over the cockpit so that was one thing this section rick chats a bit about his time on the phantom and the tornado f3 what was that like? That was very satisfying. Um, when you're a single seat fighter pilot, which I was for seven years, you, you're God's gift and you think you're the best bloke in the world. It was very amazing to have a guy sitting behind you who took a lot of the pressure off you, my navigators, <laughs> taking a lot of the pressure off you. Also, you had somebody to carry your bags when you were on detachment. <laughs> um, but the main thing, although the Phantom was a thug, I mean, it was an aerodynamic disaster. It had sort of anhedral, dihedral, vortex generators to cure various faults. But, and it was, how shall I put it, a victory of Rolls-Royce power over aerodynamics. But it could do the job. Its radar really worked. And instead of you being a one-armed paper hanger in the lightning, because you were trying to fly it, work the radar, work out where you were, work out how much fuel you needed to get back and all that, you could actually concentrate on flying the aeroplane at its hardest because the guy in the back seat, the navigator, we called them fighter gators really, um, they were the guys finding the target, highlighting the target and basically working out the tactics. And how many hours did you fly on the target? On the Phantom? Yes. 2,000 hours. And then you moved on to the F3. How was that an improvement or a disimprovement from the Phantom? It was an improvement. Its radar, its sensors were much better. It could do the same uh, endurance or have the same range without tanks as the, as the Phantom did with tanks. Um, it was a very nice cockpit environment, very nice aeroplane to fly, very fast, long range and after we'd sorted out the teething problems of the, the radar, it was a very, very effective radar. In fact, I did a, after the first Gulf War, I did um, a comparative sortie with an F-15 because the Americans in their lessons learned said that the F-3 was the only Allied fighter they respected. And uh, performance-wise, the only thing it did better than the, than the F-3 was it turned, uh, turned faster. But not a lot, surprisingly enough. So, out of the two, the F3 and the F4, which would you choose to fly in? F3. Rick gives a bit of insight into the training for the BBMF. And then you were asked to join the Battle of Britain Memorial flight. How did that come about? <laughs> well, I, my job on the Phantom, I was what you call a trapper. Basically, you, you um, worked for Central Flying School because they couldn't have enough people who were expert in the aeroplane to check out the other pilots used to be and they used to choose somebody from the phantom a flying instructor to go and check 
the uh, pilots and then it turned into um, the um, evaluation and standardization of, of all crews um, so I was doing that job in the Phantom and then I was swapped to the Tornado well of course um, for another two years until the Tornado worked itself operationally um, there was nobody to check for standardization and to evaluate so I thought oh I'll I'll see if I can go and fly the fighters on BBMF. Um, and when I went and uh, volunteered, they said, well, we don't need anybody for fighters, but we really would like you to try the Lancaster. That, that shocked me a bit, because I'd never flown anywhere. I'd never flown a piston engine apart from one mistake when I was a, a flying instructor, but that's another story. Um, and I'd certainly never flown a multi-engine thing like that, which was a tail dragger. Uh, so I said yes. It frightened me a lot and took me a long time <laughs> to get good at it, if I ever did. How was it switching to a piston engine aircraft? Unbelievable. I'd done... All of my hours had been on jets all the way from 1961 till I started with BBMF in uh, 1986. But I had, when I was a flying instructor, a young flying instructor at Syerston, um inadvertently had a trip in a chipmunk um, I was uh, again on standards and they said, a guy said, would you like a trip in the chipmunk and uh, I said, oh yes please and we got airborne and I said, oh well, what are we going to do, he said, we're going to pick up another chipmunk and I said, well who's going to fly that and he said, well you are, I said, I've never flown the chipmunk and he said, but and then he realised I was one of these straight through guys so basically he went up, did a a, a few aerobatics, a stall a spin and then he, he showed me how to land it. He got out, got in the other chipmunk and said, follow me. So that's the only experience I had. So how long did you have to train on the Titan? Well, it didn't happen like that. You start off as a co-pilot. Um, and then every now and again, the captain will say, would you like to try a landing? Probably it's, he asks you when the, the, there's a big crowd and the wind's in the wrong direction because he doesn't want to look stupid. Um, and eventually, I think, I think the second season, they said, would you like to be the transit captain? Because normally you used to carry two pilots in our lake and uh, one would actually do the, the displays and then between displays, because you might do four or five displays in, in one sortie, um, your transit captain, he gets to fly it from A to B while you're having a bit of a break and wiping your sweaty brow. Um, so I did that for a while, and then they asked me if I'd like to become the display captain, uh, so I did. Is there any modern equipment in the Lancaster? Like <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I mean, you know, there isn't really a modern equivalent. I suppose the last modern equivalent was the the V-bombers, the basically, I would think. Um, and uh, no, I was always a, a fighter pilot, you know. You, you, you didn't become a, a bomber pilot if you'd been a fighter pilot. So that was a bit ironic because I spent about 30 years as a supersonic fighter pilot and my last five years was as a bomber pilot, even though it was the Lancaster. How many hours did you acquire on the Titan? On the Lancaster, uh, 350. Which I have to say was probably a lot more than some of the poor blokes who were flying it during the war because they didn't live long enough to get those hours. Was it a hard aircraft to fly? Yes. Physically hard and and uh, technically hard. 
And what year did you fly with the BBM at? Started in 1986, uh, flew all the way through till 1990, then I went uh, to the first Gulf War flying tornadoes, came back in 92 and was asked to go back on BBMF and I carried on then from 92 till the end of 96. Here he chats a bit about the planning and formatting for flypaths and airshows. Um, basically you might do as I say two or three displays in, in one sortie you'd probably spend the weekend away because that was the way you saved the hours on the, the old aeroplanes rather than to and from Coningsby sorry from and to Coningsby to the air show you used to go and base yourself say like at North Weald and do all the displays from that so um, first of all there's the planning on how you're going to do it there's the briefing uh, fortunately the navigators worked out the the headings and all that but uh, but the bomber leads if you're doing it as a formation it's the bomber captain leads the formation and uh, the Spitfire and the Hurricane sort of formate on it so there's quite a lot of planning like briefing and debriefing and then of course when you get to the air show you have the specific briefing for the air show as well Did you um, have any unusual formations while flying around? Well, sometimes they looked unusual, they weren't supposed to. But, um, not really, no. We, 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 uh, we normally used to fly what we called Vic or line astern. Um, sometimes things like Operation Manor, where we were, we were leading it and we had the B-17 behind us and, and Hercules, it would be like, um, like a massive, great sort of mix-up, mix but uh, it was supposed to be a formation, yes. In this section, Rick gives a walk around of Just Jane, the Lancaster based at East Kirkby. Just Jane, one of the 7,600 Lancasters built for the Second World War. They basically, not a lot of people know this, but they could carry the same bomb load as the B 52. Not as far, not as fast, not as high. Uh, they used to take Grand Slam and Tallboy and mainly trying to get the pocket battleships and the submarines in the big reinforced concrete emplacements in Western France. Um, it is minute inside, absolutely minute, you've got, as you'll see. Um, but that meant you could have that whacking great bomb bay. So going from the front, um, this was a double job. The big goldfish bowl there, that was the bomb aimer's position. He would kneel with his elbows on um, a cushion and he would look through the bomb site and normally the navigator would navigate you to your initial point and from then on it would hand over to the bomb aimer and it would be like the golden shot if you're old enough to remember that be left a bit, left a bit, right a bit, steady, steady, bomb's gone and if you're carrying a full load of bombs, when you dropped the bombs, your airplane would leap up to a thousand feet in the air, it would just lift. When he wasn't doing his bomb aiming, he was sitting up above that, and as you can see, um, as the nose gunner. And he was there most of the time because the, the big important thing was to see the enemy before he saw you, because if you had a night fighter on you, because nearly everything was done at night, that was found by the, the tail gunner. But uh, by day, on your way out, when in the evening, the, the, if you could spot a, a, a fighter, you could go and hide in the clouds or something like that. So there you are. That is the bomb aimer, nose gunner. 
you've got your four Rolls-Royce Merlins, each one, I have to say horsepower because I don't know what kilowatt hours are, um, each one's about roughly about 1500 horsepower. Um, this was a um, well-known sort of pastime. Uh, each one of those bombs is a raid on a German city. Uh, that's behind Just Jane. And the swastika was a German fighter. Um, Just Jane was after the uh, Daily Mirror um, starlet who uh, used to be in um, a cartoon strip. Um, normally with very few clothes on, which was very daring in those days, um, with her little dog Fritz, of course, which is a German name. If you look up, uh, when on BBMF we used to call it a committee in a greenhouse, but as you can see, there is the pilot's cockpit. And on this side, you'd have the pilot, captain. Sitting next to him on a jump seat, you would have the flight engineer. Um, Basically, the flight engineer looked after the engines and also assisted the pilot flying the aeroplane because some of your manoeuvres literally needed two people. Um, you would, if the tail gunner saw a night fighter, he would call corkscrew left or corkscrew right. And that was basically a descending spiral, hoping to get to into cloud or into fog or whatever and not hit the ground before the night fighter got you. That required two people. Um, the flight engineer was taught um, how to fly it straight and level and, and turn and land in extremis, not very delicately, I believe. Um, uh, so if things were getting on a long journey so the pilot could go back for a fag and a wee, um, so that was him. Behind them, was the, was the navigator. He sat athwart the aircraft and uh, had all the instruments required and he would give the directions. Um, behind him, we'd have to stand back a little bit here. Well, we'll have to come behind the wing. Under the great big wings, great big wheels, uh, made to take quite a lot of heavy landings and uncomfortable landings, which it needed to when I was landing it. Right, there you have the... That, that was the dome where he could take his star shots for navigating, the Astro Dome. Um, and just in that same place, just above the wing you can see a window, that was where the wireless operator sat. Up here, this is not the real turret, this gun turret you can see, the actual gun and, the, and its seat has been replaced so we can get the public through without um, them having to sort of crawl across the floor because the, the gun and the, the um, where, where the where the gunner used to sit came quite low but that's where the mid upper was and it had uh, various brackets to stop him shooting his tail fin off so he as he as he traversed um, it would lift come over the tail fin. Here we have the tail fin, you've got the tail plane with the elevator um, on and each of these on either side, the great big fin with the rudder. Um, if you see the one at, from Coningsby, that's got normally, well, in, in its normal bit, it's 
got a white tail fin that indicated formation leader. Here we come round to the back. This is a Rosen 0.5 pair of machine guns. Um, a lot of Lancasters had Lee Enfield 303. This was really the critical place. Tail end Charlie, he was tended to be quite small. This is not the, the general turret. When you came over the coast of France and enemy occupied Europe, you would almost immediately be coned by searchlights. Uh, this was very, very unpleasant because this was accompanied by ACAC, by anti-aircraft guns. That was bad enough, but what you really didn't want was for all the searchlights to go out because that meant the night fighters were upon you. Obviously, they used to come in level. If they came in level, he had to either see the blue flash of the engine exhaust from the exhaust stubs or even holding his earphones away from him he might just hear the throb of the engines and that was when he called for the corkscrew. This life expectancy seven missions and getting out was a nightmare. He was so cramped in here if the aircraft was going down he couldn't get back up to where the rest of the rear crew got out which was the entrance door he would have to lean back and unclip from the fuselage wall the parachute pack he's wearing three pairs of gloves because any naked flesh that touches the uh, gun metal would just you'd lose your fingers so he had three pairs of gloves which made you very clumsy he had to unclip that from the wall which, which was about there and then he had to clip it on, making sure it was the right way round, because if it was the wrong way round, and he's looking for the ripcord here, the ripcord's there. And they had lots of people they found dead with the canvas just ripped in their panic they'd been pulling the wrong side. He would then, once he got it on, rotate the whole of this so that his entrance was about here. And then he would lean out and operate his parachute ripcord hoping the parachute would tear him out of the turret obviously a lot of the time it didn't work men lost left their boots in landed with two broken ankles broken ankles or even worse than that the chute didn't open or it fell off however the good news is two guys dropped 16,000 feet without parachutes and lived to tell the tale one was on the um, exit from the Tirpitz raid, luckily it was high level, and the whole turret was blown off by Akak, so his parachute was still on the aircraft wall. He stayed unconscious for the whole of the drop, landed on a snow-covered pine tree and slid off onto a snowdrift. How lucky can you be? The other guy, something similar, but he went unconscious and he woke up uh, with a sprained ankle on the snow-covered ploughed field. The Germans were about to shoot him, because they thought he was a spy and his story was wrong because where's your parachute? But fortunately they found his parachute and believed him. So I like to finish with a happy story and that was it. Right, the Lancaster was a, a very, very heavy aircraft with its four engines. It had no power assistance to the controls at all. 
it was basically everything moved using chains and rods what the RAF like to call a suitable system of linkages um, it is very very physical but it has what you call the conventional controls which is why we're standing here basically on each wing you have an aileron that's right at the end an aileron a right and a starboard aileron and a port and the way they work is if you want to turn an aeroplane you put on bank and once you've got enough bank you hold that bank and you use the lift that the wings producing a to hold you up and b to get you turning and to keep you turning so you get the bank on by applying the yoke like that one aileron goes up the other aileron goes down which gives you a differential lift and about 10 seconds after you've applied a very heavy load the old lady will start to, to put on the bank and again you have to anticipate by about 10 seconds to stop that bank going any further the other thing that happens though is being quite a big wing on in a turn the outside wing is going faster than the inside wing do you see what I mean he's on further out on the circle that gives you more drag so the aeroplane will try to yaw to slide out of the turn and that's where your big rudder comes in and you use as we say a boot full of rudder to balance the flight um, the elevators which I think everybody knows how an elevator works it's on the big tailplane they go up together and they change the lift over the tailplane which show you the force of the tailplane down which will get you your nose raising or tightening if you're in a turn and vice versa however it is very very physical and you are helped by what they call trim and balance tabs and if you look on the end of this aileron here you can see there's a rod attached to a bracket and that itself is attached to a, a little flying surface a bit like the aileron itself and what that does as the aileron goes down that surface goes up which helps to produce negative lift to help you move but say for example you want to fly straight and level and you want to speed up and you speed up obviously this wing is going to produce more lift and the aeroplane is going to try to climb now you don't want it to climb so you're going to push the stick forward to make the elevators move but you don't want to fly a great heavy aeroplane like that holding that force so you've got a trim wheel that can actually trim the surfaces like that but that, that are on the elevator until virtually that load is gone you can't let go of the controls but it means you don't have to hold that, that load on. The trouble with landing these aircraft is that their whole distribution of weight with a tail engined aircraft, with a tail, sorry, tail wheeled aircraft, is it's not stable, i.e. more of your weight is behind the rotation point, i.e. the main wheels, than in front. So if you get it wrong, you can produce a thing called a ground loop. If you start using the brakes and you are trying to turn at the same time, the tail can actually overtake you, which is uh, quite a, an experience. I've had it happen to me once. Lots of screeching and smoke, but fortunately the Lancaster's tailplane 
is made to take one of those. The other trouble with landing is the idea would be to stall it on so the main wheels and the tail wheel touch the ground at the same time. That is, in a big aeroplane like this, a highly difficult task. Um, especially if there's a crosswind because at the same time you've got to try and kick off the drift that you've got because if you're landing on a runway this way and you've got a wind coming from the side so you can track down you're actually heading into wind. This is a tricky bit and most pilots after some investigation we found used the wing down technique where you would come in turn into the wind and then use top rudder to stop the aeroplane actually turning and that put you into a good condition for hitting the ground because it helped to stick the interwind wheel onto the ground because that would want to come up um, but that's a, a simple explanation of just how difficult it can be the other trouble is if you let it touch the ground too soon when you've got still got speed and lift as you hit the ground the tail will come down producing more lift and the aeroplane will lift off and then it'll come back bounce and it's an unstable, it's what they call an undamped fugoid, but I won't get too complicated for that. He chats a bit about his time flying the Tornado F3 in Bosnia. I had the uh, very interesting experience of uh, spending almost four months in a place called Vicenza, which was the, uh, we called it the chaos, the chaos, the combined air ops centre, as the, if you like, the main authority for a Tornado F3 squadron which was always based down at Joy del Colle. Um, unfortunately after about day three the, the people found out that probably the Tornado's radar was about the best of the night fighter radars you could get in that one of the things that was happening was that um, we couldn't understand how the Bosnians were getting, or the Serbs basically, were getting their ammunition and their weapons. Um, our fine navigators in the tornado decided one day that they could wind down. What they have, a way of making your radar ignore all things approaching you below a certain speed so that you don't get a cluttered screen. Well, some wise guy ran it down so you could see things doing about 60 miles an hour and he picked up a load of helicopters bringing in ammo from East Germany, I think it was, into a football stadium and unloading it and putting it on lorries. It was wonderful, except from then on, it was the tornado did the night fighter job all the time. So I spent four months sort of uh, going out to eat in the flying suit, you know, spaghetti and pasta, pasteurised and all that, then going to work all night, finishing about four o'clock, coming back um, and then getting up again and going for a jog and doing it all again. Here he chats about going supersonic. What was the first time you went supersonic? Um, would have been, would have been sometime 1967. Um, going supersonic in the lightning was an experience. Um, especially if you did it low level because as you go supersonic in modern aircraft you don't really know it all you know is that the Mach meter is telling you you've gone supersonic with aircraft like the Lightning and the Mirage you used to have transonic jump as you went through the 
what they called then the sound barrier, as you went through the, the shock wave, it would affect your instruments. For example, the lightning, the altimeter, would jump up 1,800 feet. So you'd be ready for it flying along at 36,000 feet, be ready for the altimeter to go up. But when you're flying supersonic at low level, if you wanted to be at 200 feet, your altimeter was reading minus 1,600 feet, which was most disconcerting. Um, so that was the interesting part of going supersonic. But following, once you got past the, the, um, the mirage and the lightning, once you got to the phantom, you didn't really notice yourself going supersonic and certainly didn't in the tornado. This is where we get to hear how many hours and types he's actually flown. Well, 6,988. And can you tell me roughly what types, how many you've had? Well, the, how many, how many, oh God, how many types? Well, I'd, I'd go through Jet Provost, Mi Vampire, Meteor, Varsity, all of the Lightnings, uh, Mirage 3, Mirage 5, um, the T-33, which the French used as an instrument trainer, uh, the Fuga Magistère, uh, then came back onto the Phantom, um, all, all the sorts of Phantom that we had, then went from the Phantom, oh Nat, I threw the Nat in preparation for that mighty lightning, um, well it, but not in preparation, six of us were a trial to go straight from the Jet Provence to the mighty lightning, we all went solo but we needed a bit of a stabiliser so I flew the Nat there, um, then after the Phantom, Tornado, uh, Deco Lancaster, Devon, which was a lovely little twin-engine transport aeroplane, uh, Dakota, uh, Lancaster, and Chipmunk. I think that's all. I did 35 years non-stop flying. Normally in the RAF you do a flying tour, ground tour, flying tour, but I sort of sold my birthright for a mess of pottage and made very clear I didn't want to become a general or an air marshal and managed to avoid that but only by the skin of my teeth, so I flew that all the time. Um, I did a thousand hours on the Lightning, uh, which probably means that I flew about, did about 3,000 landings on the Lightning, because all of the Lightnings I were, was on were the Mark 3s and the Mark 1As and 2s, which were the very, very short range ones. So I got very good at landing them. <laughs> and do you have a favorite aircraft? Yeah, Mirage. Well, no, I no. To be honest, I, I would swap that to the F3 because the F3, you could actually do the job. The Mirage was a pleasure to fly, but its radar wasn't all that brilliant, and its missiles were not at that stage. We we're talking about the early 70s. And what was the highlight of your career? Oh my God. Um, Probably doing my French exchange tour, flying the Mirage. Thanks very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and hearing Rick's story. And if you want to watch Rick's or anyone else's interview, visit us at youtube.com forward slash aircrew interview and don't forget to subscribe.